Hello, I'm Chris Lowley, the editor of CityWire Selector. Welcome to the podcast. This week, we will shortly be joined by Neil Clare, the FunQuest advisor, to talk about the US equity market and the do's and don'ts of selecting managers. But before that, to get a lay of the land, I'm joined by Dr. Nisha Long, our head of cross-border investment research. So, looking at performance and flows, specifically within the equity market, what are the highlights? What are the things people should know? So, at the moment, global markets, they're enjoying a burst of alpha so far this year. And this is mostly down to central banks delaying the unwinding of monetary policies. And the Fed is also on pause and we're unlikely to see them make any changes on Fed policy in the coming weeks. Now, looking at US performance in particular, now US equities have shaken off a terrible 2018 and have climbed despite economic data released so far in the first quarter, all indicating a slowdown. But that's also why the Fed has taken off its foot off the pedal with its uh, rate rise policy. Now, for the first few months of this year so far, the S&P 500 index has gone up 11.5% in US dollar terms, which is fantastic if you compare it to the last quarter where it lost 13.5%. So how have investors reacted? What, in terms of flows, what's happened? Okay, so um, investors, they still remain cautious. And in the first two months of the year, we've seen almost $7 billion of net outflows in the active US equity funds we track across all market caps. But in February, we have seen some money trickle back into the U.S. income sector with around $545 million of net inflows. But having said that, investors still need to be wary of the stronger dollar. Now, this is a great sign of strengthening in the U.S. economy. However, it will be a drag on revenues for U.S. companies and will reflect in weaker corporate earnings when they are released in this quarter. So there's a lot for Neil Clare to get his teeth into at the moment. Sure so <laughs> let's, let's go to the interview, see how, um, how he's actually contending with it. Thank you very much, Nisha. Thank you. Thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you, my pleasure. Especially on a horribly grey day. We're very high up that we can actually see the rain cascading over London. Sorry, I should actually introduce you. I'm here with Neil Clare of FunQuest Advisor. Thank you for taking the time. Uh, we're talking about equity markets because equity is your focus. It seems like it's been a bit of a busy period, as easy to say, with the, the end of the cycle, or apparently the end of the cycle we're coming to. We've seen some reversal of flows in recent months. But what's your take on it? At the front lines, what are you seeing? Where are the positive areas? Where are the negative areas? Yeah, I think we're in late innings of a bull market. I think it's fair to say that. Whether we're at the end of the cycle, it's debatable. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at US equity and European equity managers. I would say the US equity uh, outlook, in my opinion, is is constructive um, broadly because I think the economy is in pretty good shape, albeit it's slowing down somewhat. Um, inflation is relatively subdued, and um, the Fed is now on is in pause. Obviously, one of the risks last year was the Fed may overshoot, or in terms of interest rates rises, but that appears not to be the case now. Um, Donald Trump's in year three, historically year three of election cycle is the best year for investing in the US market. Um, so I'm broadly constructive for the outlook for this year, particularly given um, the shakeout we had towards the end of last year. Um, I guess the main risk is if you see a US recession um, coming and often managers are not very good at seeing that until it's until after the event um, but I don't see that happening in the short term and, that, and that's why and um, given the sell-off we had 
which brought the market down to pretty good valuations re in recent years, plus the um, election cycle, plus the macro e economic landscape. I'm quite um, constructive um, on the outlook for the market this year. Is that broadly on developed markets though? Because it sounds like the, I mean, it's more US. US. Whatever happens in the US tends to drive elsewhere in the world, and broadly elsewhere, I, I'm. Um, Europe seems to be a more export-driven economy, so if, if you get US doing okay, China sort of stabilising and slightly improving maybe as we get to the second half of this year, Europe should do well against that backdrop. Europe obviously have got political issues with Brexit and Italy and the elections in the summer, sure. the European elections. Um, so they always tend to um, have an impact short-term on markets. Um, but I mean, I'd, if you're constructive on the US, broadly it's more an a view on equity markets and other markets will tend to f come along with the US. But I think probably um, you want to be overweight US versus other areas of the world. Just the economy seems to be much more resilient and in and tends to be doing quite well. You mentioned the the, the corrections that we saw at la the end of last year, October, we had February, then we had October and December. They were, to my understanding, largely linked to what the Fed was doing, and now the Fed is in pause. Is that possibility of another volatility event completely off the table, or is it just less? I think, obviously, the early part of the year was driven by the concern that the Fed was going to overshoot, and the second half was, I guess, the numbers kind of like supported a slowdown in, in, in economic and I got people scared, particularly with the Fed, um, indicating it was still in expansionary mode on terms of rate rises. Um, my sort of feeling this year is now that the Fed's in pause mode, um, plus you've had a bit of shakeout, um, market returns should improve. However, yeah, as I mentioned at the beginning, we're in the late cycle of a bull market. Late cycles are, normally characterised by rising volatility. So I think that's, um, you're going to get that going forward, I suspect, and um, that, that sh should be of no surprise. Broadly, volatility, in my opinion, is your friend. If you're um, not seeing a recession, these periods are, are good opportunities to either upgrade your portfolio or buy into weakness and, um, and, and t you know, be opportunistic. And a lot of the best managers, they they tend to be opportunistic in periods of volatility. You saw that in Q4. You know, a lot of managers didn't do too much and suddenly Q4 came and they used it as an opportunity to upgrade their portfolios. How did you respond then? In terms of speaking broadly, I mean, going into that correction, were you well positioned and coming out of it, did you have to change anything? I mean, broadly, um, growth did quite well for the first eight months of the year. Value actually um, um, regained some poise and outperformed in Q4, first quarter in nine, it had outperformed in the US. Um, generally, I'm still more constructive on growth in the short term view value, even though I see value potentially doing better on a medium to long term view. It's just because the um, bond yields have sort of um, come back a bit. Historically, value tends to do better when bond yields are higher and, and maybe in, 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 when inflation's picking up somewhat. So given it's subdued, bond yields have come back and growth um, is slowing somewhat. I think stocks that deliver um, steady, reliable and strong growth will continue to be bid for in this, in this environment. So not widespread change then, it was something you were already 
prepared for? It was, it was some tweaks, some changes. If I've understood that correctly, I mean, we don't we don't really make um, a lot of manager changes, um, and we don't react to short term. Broadly, the way we've been positioned in the U.S. market is we've been seeking funds um, in areas we're not represented, and areas where we're um, that we think will do well in the late latter stages of a bull market and those that are resilient in down markets. So I think last year we added two or three, two or three new funds and they fitted some of those themes. I see. Okay. Well, moving on to the sort of process aspect of things, we've been speaking to fund selectors a lot lately. It's what we do on a day-to-day basis. Mm. Um, one of the people we spoke to talked about the personalities of fund, select, of yep. fund managers. And the, the very simplistic way of looking at it is equity people that you would be dealing with, equity managers are more of the storyteller. Yep. realm. Is that something you would agree with? I mean, it, you'd, I suppose you would have to have both to have the comparison, but do you, are you more conscious, do you think, that they could be spinning a good story, and how can you counter that? How can you actually defend well, I think it's that? important not to distinguish um, personality as a good fund manager. I mean, you can have a great fund manager, but then you could be a poor performer. Uh, I started my career as um, an analyst covering Japanese fund managers. Japanese fund managers um, English, in many cases, is not great. They're not great at communicating exactly what they do. So actually, it's a great education and learning. You had to really learn about the process, and you had to be patient when you were um, dealing with them. But it was a great sort of learning curve in terms of sort of distinguishing the personality or, uh, you know, from the investment process. And now I'm covering the U.S. market, actually, or in recent times, U.S. managers are great at spinning a great story and talking, um, a great process, but then you look at their results, they bear no resemblance to the way they express themselves. So I think I'm very good, in my opinion, at um, um, sort of decoupling the two. Um, I generally focus on on, on what the process is and looking at the results. I don't tend to be too influenced by personality. Um, Obviously, if you know someone, it helps. If you... um, someone can express themselves and is able to answer the questions clear and concisely, that all helps. But I think when you take a back seat, when you come to write your meeting note, you should focus much more on the facts, and that's how I tend to operate. That sounds like a very sensible approach, the more quant element of things. I yeah. mean, with that in said, are there certain things that a fund manager can do that would be a red flag for you if you're in a meeting? We've heard also from our side of things anecdotally, they either constantly defer to their product specialist or you can't quite understand how they fit into their own team. Has that ever come up on your side of things? I mean, they're very specific examples. Well, I think it's important um, a fund manager is able to answer your questions. If he's not able to answer your questions, that's always um, not a red flag, but it's a concern. I think um, often you look at a manager's holding, if they're not consistent with the style, you're curious to find out why. And never say never, I think. I think... um, you know, you want a manager to add value for clients. So if you know certain things, it can be opportunistic driven, not necessarily process driven. And at the margin, you you can be comfortable with that. Um, I think US managers, you, style drift is a very big uh, um, warning sign. If someone's a growth manager, but they go value and, or equally value to growth, that, that can be a concern. Um, I think European managers tend to be much opportunistic um, I mean, I, I tend to be pragmatic. I think um, I don't tend to have hard and fast rules. Every situation is different. 
and you need to analyse um, in the specific circumstances. So don't try to over-generalise um, and sure. have too many specific rules. I think you should be pragmatic and judge every situation in isolation. Would you, with that said though, would you be conscious of the, the culture that that manager's working in? How much attention would you pay to their working environment, for example? No, no, it's very, for me, it's very important. I, I believe you, you add a lot of value by meeting managers face-to-face. 95% plus of my meetings are face-to-face across the con- either in the US or in Europe. So for me, I, I look, always look at the soft signals. The soft signals often tell you much more um, in terms of um, than the manager's booklet and, and the way he's answering the questions can tell. So I, I, for me, I, over the years, I've paid attention to the soft signals. Just for the purpose of the podcast, could you just explain what you mean by soft signals? What's, what would be the sort of things you would be looking for? I mean, confidence in answering the questions, uh, looking you in the eye. Um, if you ask him a left field question, being able to answer the question. Um, it's more that and a manager not referring to his notes when he's talking um, is, 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 and then if you do that by a conference call, you know, you can come across as monotonic. Um, also, meeting managers on site, you can meet multiple members of the sure. investment team. Walking around the office, you get a feel for the culture. In the US, you notice, for example, um, it's slightly different to Europe. It's much it's less open plan. PMs and analysts often have their own office. Uh, they often just meet every to talk but they have their own office so it allows them more thinking time um, so just these kind of details I mean uh, how a manager is feeling that day that comes across if you meet him he doesn't necessarily come across as um, you know, and also the, the other va- added value of doing a research trip is you see um, similar managers doing the same thing and, ha- and how they're reacting to certain fluid situations um, you can you can cross compare which is always a useful um, barometer no, that it must be very useful, especially if you're looking for a very t- specific type. Yeah. You can go and see how various people are approaching the same area. Sure. Um, I've got a list here because we did a piece at the end of last year called Selector's Choice, where we asked um, equity investors red flags and positive things that they liked. And I was just going to try and run a couple by you, if that's okay, Neil, to see where you stand on these. Sure. Um, red flags, lack of fresh ideas. I mean, it depends on the situation. Um, a, lot, a lot of US managers, uh, for example, uh, the key is the long term, they're patient, if the market's not giving them opportunities, like 2017 is a good year, They're, one of the managers we use made, um, he, you know, it's quite a focused portfolio, he didn't buy or sell any new positions, so that, that, and he, he had a very strong year that year. Um, so it's case by case, some managers um, say they're looking for a, a shake-out market volat- and volatility, um, to do things, and then last year you had a couple of opportunities. If they don't do something, you want to ask them why. Um, you know, ma- most managers are able to um, find ideas. It's a question of price and discipline. So, uh, I'm, depends. Depends. Every everything is different. I think um, some managers we have are extremely low turnover. Some managers we have much more opportunistic. We have different managers for different. And peer groups, and we, we like to have diversification amongst our managers in terms of the way they do things. So um, I'm comfortable with both, but it depends on circumstances. Well, also, I think it, it chimes with something that's on the positive side of things is that communication, actually understanding why they're doing what they're doing or not yep. doing anything. That, and that seems from speaking to selectors over the last three months and longer, yep. communication seems to be coming more and more up the agenda. If you can not do what you want, 
but you can do more. You're giving more leeway if you can explain that rationale, if you're open to phone calls, if you're open to face-to-face visits. I think you know, over, over a decade, I've been meet, in, in many cases, I've been meeting a lot of managers over a decade. So that's where, again, the added value comes. If you see them, you've, you've met them multiple times. And if they answer questions differently or they say different things to what's inconsistent with the past, that would be probably a red flag. If you ask me a red flag, if they say something that like, three or four years they didn't go, that would be a, a cause for concern. It could be that they've upgraded something, but it, normally it, it means that they're, something's not working and they're adjusting and that often that that could be the wrong time and uh, that would be a, that could be of a concern should we say another thing that was viewed as a concern and again something we've probably touched upon is lack of humility so when something does go badly and they can't explain it or they won't explain it does that ever come up for you i think uh, most managers fortunately the one one meets um i find them very friendly i find sometimes managers can be a little bit arrogant but often it's because you're asking stupid questions. So I think if you're prepared for a meeting, and often if you've met someone multiple times, um, I don't find that to be an issue. Um, some managers, you know, they, if you're asking me like a number of holding, it's not, not something that you need to ask during a meeting. You should, you should do that before the meeting. So I can see why someone can, would get upset. So that's not really, that's just being unprepared, I think. It's not a lack of humility from the manager in that particular case. So. You know, I never, I've not really come across that meant that frequently, to be honest. Sometimes it, it, markets can be extremely volatile. A manager would rather not be there, would rather be at his desk trading. You have to understand that kind of circumstance, and then you just make it more concise and just to the point. The questioning and accept the manager's busy because he's he's trying to add value for clients and. And that's what his big date job is. And, you know, that's, that's, you have to accept that. We hear that from our side, the, the sort of walking that tightrope of being available, but not always available. Yeah. They don't want somebody who's going to be on CNBC every sure. morning or writing a note every afternoon. There has to be an element of, well, when are you actually doing your job? When are you there to do the thing you're paid to do, I guess? Sure, sure. I think you have to have a, strike a balance. I think increasingly uh, firms are employing client PMs, um, strategists to communicate to, to the outside world what the manager's doing and thinking is that good for you if you yeah got i'm fine with that i mean i'm typically happy as long as i meet the manager once once or twice a year once if it's a low turnover strategy and then catching up with the um, client pm or strategist or another team member for an update because it's just you're trying to build on cumulative knowledge you're not trying to um, learn about the investment process again so you're just thinking about how they're thinking about the market landscape, how they're reacting to certain news flow over their holdings. And if they're able to do that, that's fine. You've been doing this for more than two decades now. CityWire has now been going for two decades as well. What is the biggest change or challenge you've seen over that period? I appreciate that. It's a very big time frame and a very big question. But is there something that stands out that's either evolved from a challenge to be something you now deal with or something that's still persistently difficult? I think there's more and more funds out there. There's more choices available to clients. Um, the pressure on fees is a, a big trend. It's driving um, maybe a, a bifurcated market. Um, either people are concentrated or they're, um, they're basically, you're, you prefer the passive option. So if you're in the middle, you have to go one way or the other. And I guess it's becoming a bit of a bifurcated market. Um, more and more data is out there on funds. Uh, you can use it often. In some, some cases, it's, it's more for noise, and you should look at the longer-term picture. I was reading a really piece of interesting research on the 10 best-performing stocks 
on the US market over the last decade. And it's interesting, um, not all those stocks, by holding a portfolio with all those stocks did not mean you, you outperformed every time period over that period. And you had a number of periods of big drawdowns. But it takes a lot of patience to hold those stocks during those drawdowns because you understand the longer term picture. And that actually adds value over time. And that's often the way we think about um, manager selection. You should not necessarily be fearful of volatility and drawdown provided um, you know, you're not selecting something to be low. It's not designed to be low volatility and it's not designed for short, short term. Clients often try to look at the short term, but short term is more luck and skill than skill. So I'm more focused on the longer term. And if, if I get my managers right, the way I view volatility is I would encourage clients to be adding on, on periods of short term weakness and taking profits. Um, in periods of strength and, and reallocating on that basis. And that's often how I view, um, say, the US market where you've got value and growth. It's often been a, not a bad way. Obviously, growth has done really well over the last decade. Um, and everyone's now asking when's value going to come back. I'm sure it will, but it may, it may, you may have to wait a bit. You have to have that discipline to ride out the difficulties that are now. Yeah. Looking ahead then, what do you see shaping the market? You mentioned there more data coming in. Is that going to be, is that going to be exponential? We're we going to see more and more and more data. Yeah, I think there's more and more data available on funds. It doesn't necessarily always help you having more and more information if not using it well. So I think it's not the data um, that's going to be the key. It's how you use the data that's going to distinguish the good from the bad um, going forward. Um, and again, you just have good discipline you don't want to be reacting always to data. In some cases, it makes sense. In some cases, you need to look at the bigger picture, the longer-term outlook. Um, I think you're going to get more quantitative strategies, and the market's going to increasingly be go towards um, super-concentrated managers, where you go for alpha, and passive, where you go for beta, and you have to decide where you want on that debate. SRI, I think, like it or not, it's going to become more and more influential. Clients are going that way. Even the US managers I met on my last trip in December are starting to look at SRI or have added significant resource in that way. So it tells me it's a, a trend that's going to develop further. Um, so, I mean, it's, and I also think active is going to do a lot better than passive going forward. I think, you know, in the last decade we've had a, an area of easy money. It's been an area basically that um, um, certain things, certain styles done well, and we haven't really had much volatility yet. I think, you know, and the returns have been 10 to 15% type over that decade. I think in a low, low return environment, more than 5 to 8% um, return outlook, you're going to get more volatility, and um, you want managers who can perform in that kind of context. And active is definitely a better um, when you get drawdown in markets, you get volatility. Active managers can hold cash. They can optimize in periods of volatility. You want to be going, you want to be investing in active managers during that such a period. It seems like it's going to be a, a challenging market. Like you said, that bifurcation is going to continue. There's going to be a big gap and that's going to put pressure on fees because people are going to have to... I think ongoing, yes. Yeah, the, the market's going to be going that way because... And in a way, I think it shouldn't be. A, it should, it's not, shouldn't be. It's not a bad thing. If, you, if you're good, um, you'll be rewarded. If you're not good, you'll 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 be people will switch away from you. 
Um, I think the industry could do a better job and have more dynamic pricing. At the moment, it's all, although performance fees are less, in the past it was all very loaded. If you did well, you got a performance fee, but if you, if you underperformed, you didn't suffer, you still got a, a reasonably good fee. A dynamic, if you, if you outperform, you get you know, 30 basis points more. If you underperform, you give up 30 basis points. That kind of, um, so rewarding success and penalizing failure. That kind of industry pricing, uh, I think, um, would, would, would go down well. And I'm surprised more and more people aren't looking at that. Because I saw Fidelity and Allianz both bought it in to some extent. And neither the bands are quite narrow. Mm. I think we could, we could, they could stretch the band a bit more. Um, and that could, um, you know, that could indicate their confidence and they, they expect their funds to outperform. And um, investors, you know, can see the point of the value of active management in that context. Neil, thank you very much. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us. It's been a wide ranging chat in a short space of time. So thank you very much. I won't hold you much more. I'm sure you want to get out into the lovely rain for the rest thank of the you. afternoon. Thank you, Neil.